Well, to Mark's welcome, it's good to, to see all of you here again today. We're moving into probably what is the, the trickiest uh, section of the book, which kind of makes up most of the book, actually. But as last week, we'll, we'll, read the book, we'll read the book through, and this morning we're going to look at the section that runs from verse 5 right down to verse 16, and we'll be thinking about it under this theme of how ungodliness brings judgment, therefore we ought to contend for the faith. So in your Bibles, it's on page 1027. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God, Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were destined for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under doomy darkness until the judgment of the great day just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. They are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, their loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. 
But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last days there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. And so reads God's word. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Your word is truth. May you, by your spirit, impress it upon us and keep us in your love as we consider these themes in the name of Jesus. Amen. I was walking home with one of the neighbors a while back and we got talking about the Bible and matters of faith and he said he had heard uh, a short presentation of some kind where he found the material very harsh. He said, you know, the guy was saying that, uh, what was it? If you sin, you should cut off your arm or um, poke your eye out or something like that. Oh, that's very that's very harsh that stuff i not don't really like that stuff and i wouldn't really go for that there are other things i do find okay but that's just a bit you know a bit harsh and so we got talking about that and i said you know the odd thing is it's actually jesus who said that and he said lots of things like that isn't that very unusual and we had a little bit of a chat about it but when you think about it, shouldn't someone have kind of taken Jesus aside and said, listen, bro, all this talk about judgment puts people off. Maybe you should go for some of your more favorite hits like love your neighbor. People like that one. Or don't judge. That one goes down better. You know, time is going to come where people are not going to like that kind of talk. But Jesus, of course, had plenty of time to adjust his message were such a thing necessary. But when you read the Gospels as a whole, you find that he kept on talking about it. And sometimes he did it in very short, punchy ways. Sometimes he used long stories to illustrate the same point. Now, why would he do that? If you know the magicians Penn and Teller, you can YouTube them if you haven't seen them. The, the guy who does all the talking, the big dude, because the little guy doesn't, say anything he's strongly atheistic but on this theme he said if you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life and you think that it's not really worth telling this telling them this because it would make it socially awkward and atheists who think people shouldn't tell people about this just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself how much do you have to hate someone to not tell them how much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible 
and not tell them that. I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that that truck was bearing down on you, there is a certain point where I tackle you. And this is a lot more important than that. And Jude would give that statement of atheistic Gillette Penn a hearty amen. He does believe that there is a judgment, that there is a heaven and a hell, that there are right and wrongs. It does matter how you live. And though it was just as socially awkward then, there was never a time where people thought, oh yes, I'm so happy to hear that. There was never a socially acceptable time. But Jude pours a lot of his short letter into this theme of judgment. And why would he do that? Well, the theme of the series is to contend for the faith. You see that in, in verse 3, as we considered last week. And the once for all faith is the good news of Jesus Christ, his giving of himself for the forgiveness of sin and the freedom that that brings. And now that's under threat. It's been compromised by liars, false teachers, who have snuck in and they are undermining these truths. And Jude dwells long and hard on judgment to encourage those who are believers to hold fast and to contend for the faith and to make it clear to them that those who follow the path of false teaching like these men and women, whoever they were in the church, they will experience judgment and you've got to hold on to the faith. God will not be mocked and he will not allow his gospel to be twisted and perverted as he puts it in verse 4. And Jude adopts this very flamboyant and poetic style to bring these points across, as you heard when we were reading it together. He cites loads of examples that his readers would recognize, but we maybe might not recognize just as quickly. So we may need a little help uh, to, to unpack them as we go along. So God judges ungodliness, so contend for the faith. So in verses 5 to 7, he gives three examples of ungodliness from the past and the lessons that ought to be learned from those to remind his readers of how serious it is to undermine God and make up your own rules, basically. So he begins in, in verse 5, says, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now that's a reference back to the second book of the Bible, Exodus, when the people were enslaved under the Egyptian rule of Pharaoh, and God rescued the people out of that using the, the ten plagues, and they were freed going through the Red Sea and were making their way towards what was known as the promised land. But they then began to doubt God and got embroiled in all sorts of idolatry and mess, and most of the people who actually experienced that freedom from Egypt never made it to the promised land because of them getting caught up in idolatry and not following the way in which God had led, led them out. They didn't act like people who'd been saved by God at all. That's the first example he cites. Then in verse 6 he talks about, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under doomy darkness. I keep saying that, darkness. <laughs> Whatever darkness is. Uh, darkness 
until the judgment of the great day. Now that is likely to refer to another equally kind of problematic uh, text in Genesis 6, where it appears that angels came down and intermarried with women, and they were condemned for it. It's in Genesis 6, just before the flood. And it's a very uh, unusual account. And the, this group called the Nephilim, we think are what, what came of that. I have no idea how that works, okay? But that's what's most likely the reference. It is, it is a usual reference biblically. But the point that uh, Jude is bringing it up is to say that these angels left their proper position of authority under God's authority, and they went to do something else, governed by their own desires. That's the point that he's making in using that illustration. They didn't stay in their own position of authority, so they left their proper dwelling. See, in verse 6, that's the main thing. They left their proper dwelling, which was under God's authority and rule, and did their own thing. And the result of that is that they are being kept under chains in this gloomy darkness until the final judgment will deliver. So the people in Egypt died in the desert. That was their judgment. These angels who left their position, they are being judged and are being kept uh, for judgment. So whatever their precise sin was, their judgment is certain. And he then cites another example, which Melissa read for us, again from Genesis, of Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah, not Begorah, it always reminds me of Begorah, Sodom and Gomorrah, right? They were notorious for being sin-riddled cities. They became synonymous with talking about wickedness and, and judgment. And it's often assumed that the issue only was that of homosexual sin, and they apparently trying to have sex with the angels who come into the story, coming back to that theme. But there was much more going on in that city. They were known for being full of pride, for greed. You can read about what Ezekiel says about them. He says that they had they were overflowing with food supplies, more than they could ever use, and they didn't care about the needs of the poor and those around them. So there was a lot going on with that city. God takes those matters of social justice just as seriously, and God utterly destroys them in this spectacular judgment of fire and sulfur that we read. And more than that, they then undergo this eternal punishment. So the big theme that's coming through loud and clear with these references is that God judges ungodliness. The descriptions are fearful, but he's writing these to those he considers beloved, called, kept, actually to encourage them to contend for the faith, to learn afresh from the past and to apply that to the present because the ungodly people now among them think that they can get away with anything they want. They can pervert the truth to their own advantage and twist it but they actually will meet a similar fate. So contend for these truths, deepen your convictions in the once for all faith and fight for it when those even in the church try to undermine it because they will come under a similar judgment for what they are doing. And so he says in verse eight, yet in like manner, these people also 
relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, it's not that they're doing precisely the same things in like for like, but they're following a similar path. And so they can expect then a similar judgment. And in, in verse 8, they seem to rely on their dreams rather than on the authority of what has been given once for all, handed to the apostles. They're literally talking about things that they've dreamt up in their own heads. And they defile the flesh. So in some way, they are involved in sexual immorality. They're sexually unhinged. They are living whatever way they please sexually. And they reject authority. They are not coming under the authority of the once-for-all faith given to the apostles. They don't know their proper place then, just like the angels didn't know their proper place. They're not accepting that. They don't want to be under authority. They want to do things themselves. And those types of themes are not that difficult uh, to relate to in our own lives and today. Life on my terms. And that is the root of all opposition to God, essentially, is I'll decide what goes. I'll, I'll be the authority. I'll take what suits me, and I'll reject what doesn't. I will rule me on my terms. And these people have a bloated view of their own selves, selves their own self-importance, and they have got a very tiny view now of God and even of, of the angels. So they somehow blaspheme uh, the, the glorious ones, again, another likely reference to angels. Now, to illustrate his point, Jude does what he, what he does so well, is he illustrates it with something that's equally problematic as far as we're concerned, because we don't have a notion what he's talking about. But some of his readers would have, so let's give it a bash. He goes on to say, now, he's basically saying, look, this is an illustration to help you see this. So he says, but when the archangel Michael that's the fellow who appears in the Gospels and talks to Mary. Same angel. I was going to say dude, but he's not a dude. He's an angel. That's Gabriel. Yes, sim yes similar. Uh, archangels, I mean. So Gabriel appears, thank you, yes, in the New Testament. I'm glad you're listening. That was a test. Right, so there's Gabriel and Michael in this instance who we're told is contending, contending with the devil. And he was disputing about the body of Moses. He didn't presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Now, it, we don't know what he's talking about. This is the problem. So the illustration kind of misses us. We're thinking, what? Michael did who? What? Fighting with Satan about Moses' body? I don't read that in the Old Testament. That's right, you don't. That's part of the issue with Jude. It's not written in the Old Testament. So what he is doing is he is citing what would have been well known to his readers, but is part of Jewish traditional literature, not stuff that's in our Bible, okay? But stuff that you can, his readers would have known about, part of their folklore, if you like. And so what he's doing with this illustration, whether he's saying it actually happened or not, doesn't really affect the illustration and the point of the illustration. So that's the thing you need to focus on. So what he is saying is, look at how Michael interacted with another archangel. He didn't slander even Satan. 
in that dispute over Moses' body. He said, the Lord rebuke you. In other words, even Michael had respect for Satan. Even though Satan was a fallen angel, he didn't think to blaspheme him. And yet these false teachers come and they blaspheme the glorious ones. What do they know? And they're only humans. They need to recognize how fundamentally flawed they are in what they're doing. Even your own traditional stories will tell you that. He preferred to leave God to deal with Satan. He had himself in his right position under God's authority. So that's the purpose of that illustration. Perfectly clear on that one then. No, no niggles. You're not clear. Don't worry. That's what questions are for next week. <laughs> so that's what he is saying. In that example, Michael recognized his rightful position. The false teachers are not. That's the point of that illustration. So then he goes on to say that these guys are uninformed. They are base. They are like unreasoning animals. They are doing what they understand instinctively. Woe to them, he goes on in verse 11. Their ungodly behavior will attract God's judgment. So contend for the faith, beloved ones. Now, my neighbor is a friendly guy. He doesn't remind me much of these false stories, false teachers, rather. The major difference, there's major differences at play, of course, but there are principles that carry across to walking home with your neighbor and talking about themes like judgment in, in the Bible. These false teachers are, walk, are coming into a local congregation and undermining the, the gospel. My neighbor is simply musing about how does this whole talk of judgment work in the Bible? So how do you contend for the faith in settings like that? How does the reality of judgment inform us on those occasions? Well, I think it is a, a sobering reality check. It tells us and it tells me to think with eternal realities in mind. It alerts me to the fact that God will judge all expressions of self-rule with an eternal judgment from the suburban decent person to the sexual deviant that even society may ridicule. It shows me also of key significance, I am no better without grace, that I am no better without mercy, and that I too would prefer self-rule and not accept my position under God's rule and do things my own way. And I deserve judgment to come, and, and, and so you, you end up going full circle back to seeing the need for the pristine once and for all gospel delivered to the saints. The astounding news of God becoming incarnate in Jesus Christ, who in his life, his paying for my deviance on that cross of wood, in his death there and in his victory from the raising, from his death in the resurrection from the grave, rescuing me from judgment, from self-ruin, an opposition to God, the beloved Father. That's what all these things drive us back to, that pristine message. And then we are emboldened again, encouraged afresh to contend for it in our own minds and in our own hearts to repeat it afresh and to share it in love and respect for my kind neighbor musing on questions like, why does the Bible say things that just sound so harsh? God will indeed judge ungodliness, so contend for the faith. But Jude isn't finished yet. 
He goes on to cite many more examples of characters that attract judgment, and no doubt, Sylvie, to raise even more questions for you now as we move on, he gives a damning description of the false teachers by using some more people to illustrate his point. So he says, woe to them, in verse 11, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. Perfectly clear, no? <laughs> he uses some more examples that we need a little bit of filling out on. It's shorthand for him. So he's basically saying, if we were to use similar language today, it's a bit like somebody being a Judas, or my boss has been a little Hitler. You know, you, you go, oh yeah, I get that. Similarly, his readers would have, oh yeah, I get that, but we need a little bit of help to fill it in. Now, these men, Cain, Balaam, and Korah, were classic examples of the disastrous effects of jealousy, greed, and pride, and not knowing your proper place under God's rule. Cain was the first murderer who killed his brother Abel out of pure hatred, and he was condemned to restless wandering. This guy, Balaam, appears in the famous story with a talking donkey. He was a prophet of Israel who, he would tell you whatever you wanted to hear if you lined his pockets with the right amount of money, even if it was to have his own people cursed. And he dies by the sword. And then this man, Korah, was a Levite, a priest. He was a dude who, who led a rebellion, him and many with him, against Moses and Aaron, again, not recognizing appropriate authority. He had a lust for power and authority on his terms. And the upshot of that event literally was that the ground swallowed him and all of his followers up. Gone. In judgment. And so his name, Korah, became associated with being a divisive and rebellious person. And so what Judas doing is saying, you know these stories? Well, these false teachers, they're doing the same thing. They're rebelling against God-given authority, apostolic authority. They're causing division, and they can expect a similar judgment. So contend for the faith. Don't get swept up with this and know that this is what is going to happen to these people. God will not be mocked. Sooner or later, rebellion against God's authority will always be judged. So contend for the faith. Recognize your rightful place under God's authority. The bottom line of all sin is to claim an authority that is not ours. I think I'm going to sneeze. No, I'm not. This recording is going to sound very curious today. <laughs> I may sneeze. Watch out for it. The bottom line of all sin is to claim an authority that is not ours. But we must recognize God is our true source of authority, and he tells us what's what. We don't tell him what's what. We don't decide what position we occupy. We are under his rule. And only in the cross of Christ can the power to dissolve that be found. And so we contend for the faith. We learn from these examples of old. All the way from people like Korah right up to the archangel Michael who recognized, in all, you recognize in all of these stories, these realities. Now, there is a norm in our culture which is very deeply ingrained and assumed. It's the idea 
that being true to yourself is to be most fully human. That is the most honorable way to live and to flourish. Be yourself by following yourself and your, your own desires, your wants, your personal authority. No one has the right to tell you how to live. And that's applauded when we see people do their own thing and to ignore any kind of authority over them. Now, Jew just cuts right through that culture, as he did, no doubt, at this time also. The false teachers here are doing this very thing that our culture most applauds. They're following their own desires, making up their own rules, rejecting the written message of the gospel, and following their dreams, their sex drives, their preferences, their own agenda. Walking on others if needs be to get what they want and where they want to be. They're loud and they're full of their own self-importance. The result is ugly. They become like animals, selfish, empty shells of people. They become less of themselves under their own rule and not more, which happens under God's rule. When you're servant to yourself, you emaciate your own person. You become less, and they deprive themselves of all that is good. And so he goes on to say, they are hidden reefs, verse 12, at your love feasts, which is a way of describing communion, which we will participate in later as they feast with you without fear. They're like rocks that can, can ruin a boat. You can run aground with these people in your community. They're shepherds feeding themselves. Waterless clouds swept along by the winds. Fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. All of these images describing very poetically the ruin that these people bring to themselves and to the community. They look after themselves. They grumble. They boast. They play favorites. They make promises that they cannot keep. They don't deliver like waterless clouds, fruitless trees. They make promises that are never realized. And utter darkness is reserved for them in verse 13. Judgment will fall. And on, in a word, they are ungodly. And again, he moves to an illustration that is unfamiliar to us. He talks in verse 14. It was about these also that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones. And just notice the emphasis on the word ungodly that comes through. To execute, execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism, to gain advantage. And we may not be familiar with Enoch or the book of Enoch. It's another example of Jewish literature that these guys would have been familiar with. And he cites that again to illustrate his point. God will judge ungodliness. Categorically, certainly, he did in the past. He will now and he will in the future. 
And so he wants them to resist the teaching that denies these truths and resist any veering away from it in their own hearts and mind and as a congregation and to make sure that they contend for the faith against everything that these false teachers are presenting. Because this is the faith once and for all delivered to the saints and there is hell to pay literally should that gospel be twisted or perverted or peddled for money or somehow to gain position. Watch out for that. Don't be fooled by that. And frame your interaction with the people and world around you with these truths in mind. The gospel is true and the gospel is good and judgment will befall all ungodliness. So contend for these truths. Be thankful for the way in which God's mercy has rescued you from these realities. In our own lives, we, <coughs> we are never in a position we can point the finger and say, oh, I am so much better. It's no wonder God has shown me mercy. I don't know if he'll ever show it to the likes of you. That's not how it works. The once for all faith has rescued us as ungodly people. And we need to contend for these things in our own heart. And we need to have mercy, as we'll see next week, on those who are struggling with these realities. But we need to contend against those who seek to twist it. Even the atheist Penn Gillette understood that to say nothing is inconceivably unloving. And so contend for the faith, knowing that it's God's mercy to you that allows you to do so. Perhaps most poignantly reflected in 1 Corinthians 6, a similar theme to some of these topics, where he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. God will judge ungodliness, so contend for the faith, but do so in mercy, grace, and truth. Let's pray. Our Father, there is much in this book that is unfamiliar to us, perhaps even confusing, when we have much to learn about the background that Jude is talking about. But where we can see the themes that come through so loudly about the judgment that you and your goodness, you and your righteousness bring. Help us to contend for the faith, to embrace it, to believe it, to, to fight for it in our own hearts and minds and in the environments we find ourselves in, the church and beyond. And we pray for your mercy and your help to do that.
May we recognize our rightful place under your authority and seek to thrive in that. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.